right, we're in Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 10. A little background here, Adam filled us in. So the Lord, this is after the first, the first time that Moses gets the Ten Commandments from God, comes down the mountain, smashes the Ten Commandments. When he sees the people involved in idolatry with the golden calf, that's in Exodus 32. And then he goes, he's called to go up to Mount Sinai a second time and to bring two stone tablets that he is told to make with him. And Moses asks to see the Lord. We just talked about that, but the Lord said to him, no man can see my face and live. And we talked about, talked about that before. Lord places Moses in a cleft and rock puts his hand over him, passes by, and announces God. So God reveals his nature to Moses as a compassionate, loving, and forgiving God who also brings the wicked into judgment. Uh, So let's pick it up in Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 10. Read verses 10 to 17 to start off. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am establishing a covenant with you. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been done on all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you shall see the works of the Lord. For I will do awesome things for you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Gergesite, the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, lest it be a stumbling block in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, Cut down their groves. You shall burn the graven images of their gods with fire. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord God, a jealous name, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the foreigners of the land and they indulge themselves in gross immorality with their gods by making sacrifice to them and they invite you and you eat of their sacrifices, and you take their daughters for your sons and give your daughters to their sons. For your daughters, and your daughters commit fornication with their gods, and your sons commit fornication with their gods. You shall make no molten gods for yourself. So so here God is repeating some of the things that he said in the Ten Commandments, some of the things he told Moses earlier. So there's, there's some repetition of things that we covered earlier. So God promises here, he says he wants, he wants, he's, he's making an agreement. I think he's ratifying, confirming the agreement that he, he spoke about earlier. Agreement, a covenant is an agreement between two parties. We've got a, a lawyer in the crowd here, so he can, uh, he can correct me if I make some mistakes. It's an agreement between two parties, generally the terms and conditions, and what each party is responsible for, and what happens if one of the parties fails to deliver what they say they're going to do. So that's, that's typical uh, aspects of a contract. And uh, so God says, he's, he's, he's talking about this covenant relationship that he has with them. And God says for his part that he's going to drive out the tribes currently inhabiting the land of Canaan. He's going to do miraculous signs and wonders. That's what God's going to bring to the table here. And he tells the Israelites what they must do. And this is the first part of that. There's, there's more to follow. The first part, what we just read here, he says, number one is you're not going to make any covenants with anybody else. This is, this is a covenant that says you're, you're no longer in the covenant-making business. You're not going to make any covenants with any of the people of the land because if you do, it will become a stumbling block for you. And then he goes on specifically about a whole bunch of things that they are not to do. He says... You are to destroy the pagan worship of the Canaanites, the people you're going into their land, smash their altars, smash their religious pillars, cut down their sacred groves, 
don't worship their gods. And God says, don't worship their gods because I am a jealous God. So this we've seen this before. God says, I'm a jealous God. We think of jealousy as a, is a, uh, a flaw or a negative thing, but God says, no, I'm a jealous God. It, 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 it's, it's like a relationship between a husband and wife where you, you don't be faithful to me, you belong to me, and, and I'm a jealous God. I insist that you stay faithful to me. He said, don't eat their sacrifices. And then he's very specific here. He says, don't give your sons to their daughters in marriage. And don't give your daughters to their sons in marriage, because if you do that, you're going to end up following their gods into and commit, basically committing fornication with their gods. That's what he's saying. He says, they're going to lead you into sin, the sin of fornication. You're going to be, you're going to be unfaithful to me if you do that. So don't intermarry with them and don't make any images, don't make any gods. So there's a whole bunch of things don't do. So God is very concerned. He's talking about what's going to happen in the future when they go into the land of Canaan. And he's concerned that the people will end up being contaminated by the nations that they're displacing. That the nations are going to impact them and corrupt them and make them worthless. And recall from Exodus 19, God's vision for what he wanted the people to be. This is when, he, when, they're, when they're all gathered together at Mount Sinai the first time. In Exodus 19 and verse 3, it says, The Lord went up to the mountain of God, called them from the mountain, saying, And God called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore, my, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be a special people to me above all the nations, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a royal priesthood, a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the children of Israel. So God had told them that he wanted the people to be his own special people among all the nations, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that are set apart from all the other people of the earth. This is the vision, of course, Peter talks about how he wants, this is what the Christians are supposed to be. So, so first question I have is, why did God start? He's talking about what's going to happen in the future. Why did he start off with all this negative stuff? Why, why all the don't do this, don't do that, don't do Why didn't he start off in a more positive tone here? Okay. Um, and uh, why does he God call himself a jealous God? I mean, I don't, I don't think that jealousy is a, is a, a positive characteristic here. Um, and I think the, the answer to that can be found if we think about what happens after this point. So this is, this is God is preparing them for going into the land of Canaan, where they're going to be for hundreds of years afterwards. And when you consider what happened to the people, God is giving them these very specific warnings for a reason. I want to look at two, two examples near the end of the story. So, so Israel goes into the land. They got into the period of judges, then a period of kings, and then after Solomon, it splits into the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And so I want to look at the very tail end of the northern kingdom and also the southern kingdom before they go into captivity in Babylon. So why does God tell them, don't do this? I think God's because God loves them. He knows where this road goes. So he's warning them, if you do this, you're going to end up destroying yourselves. So, so you, you, can't, you can't do these things. And let's turn to Hosea chapter 1. This, this, this imagery about I am a jealous God and you need to be faithful to me and don't go following after the gods of the other people. And what happens in, in Hosea, this is near the end, this is about... So Moses is writing about 1,400 years before Christ. This is, Hosea is writing about 750 years before. So this is 650 years later. This is as the northern kingdom is about to be uh, terminated and taken off into captivity in, uh, by the Assyrians. In Hosea chapter 1, Hosea starts off describing the spiritual condition of Israel. What happened 
after 650 years after these warnings were given, where they had, be, where they had gone. In Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 2, the beginning of the word of the Lord to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of fornication and children of fornication, for the land will surely go a-whoring by departing from the Lord. So he went to Gomer, daughter of Dilblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then pick it up again in chapter 2 in verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. So obviously he's speaking to one of of the children of, of Gomer. And I am not her husband. I will remove her fornication from out of my presence and her adultery from between her breasts that I may strip her naked and make her again as she was at the day of her birth. I'll make her desolate and as a dry land, and I will kill her with thirst. I will not have mercy upon her children, for they are children of fornication. For their mother went a-whoring. She that bore them disgraced herself, for she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and water, and my garments and my linen clothes, my oil and my necessities. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will stop the way, so she will not find her path, she will follow her lovers, but overtake, but not overtake them. She will seek them, but not find them. She will say, I will go and return to my former husband, for it was better for me than now. For she did not know I gave her corn, wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver to her, but she turned the silver and gold all over to Baal. Um, and then continuing down at, in... Uh, Let's go to the end of Hosea, in Hosea chapter 13. Verse 4, God says, I am the Lord your God, who makes the heaven firm and creates the earth, whose hand have created the whole host of heaven. But I did not show them to you that you should seek after them, I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me, and there's no Savior beside me. I tended you as a shepherd in the wilderness, in an uninhabited land. When they had their pastures, they were completely filled, and their hearts were exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. So I will turn, so I will be to them as a panther and as a leopard by the way of the Assyrians. So God's saying, basically, the picture here is that the people are, the people have been unfaithful to God. That he, he, when he's trying to describe what the people were like, he says, go and, and marry a, a, a woman who's a prostitute and she's going to be unfaithful to you because this is how the people have been to me. And he says here that uh, uh, I led them through the wilderness, but in verse 6, he says, when they had their pastures, they were completely filled and their hearts were exalted, therefore they forgot me. So they were, they were influenced. First of all, she, she went after the, the pagan gods as an unfaithful wife, and then it also says that when they became filled, when they, when they made it through the desert relying on God, but once they reached the land where things were, uh, were, were uh, bountiful, where they had wealth, then they, they abandoned God, they forgot about God. So this is, this, is, this is the two dangers, is going after being influenced by the worldly nations around them, and then also getting complacent when their needs were met and they, they went through a time of, of, uh, of, of wealth. Um, Also, Jeremiah. This is a few hundred years later when Israel is, when Judah, the southern kingdom, is about to get taken off into captivity. And a lot of the same imagery is used here of an unfaithful spouse. Jeremiah chapter 2. Starting in verse 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, 
What transgression have your fathers found in me as to go far from me and follow after vain and worthless things? Did they not say, where's the Lord who led us out of the land of Egypt, who guided us in the wilderness in an unknown, untrodden land, untrodden land, a land that was waterless and barren, in which no one traversed and where no son of man dwelt? I brought you into Carmel to eat its fruit and good things. But you entered and defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? But those who handled the law did not trust me, and the shepherds acted profanely toward me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after unprofitable things. Therefore, I will bring charges against you, says the Lord. I will bring charges against the sons of your sons. For pass by the islands of Chittim and see, send a Kadar and consider diligently. See if such things happen, whether nations will change their gods, though they are not gods. But my people change their glory to a glory from which they will not profit. Heaven was amazed at this and was exceedingly horror struck, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They forsook me, the fountain of living water. And you'd for themselves, broken cisterns, unable to hold water. And uh, in chapter 3, he uses the similar imagery to that we saw in Hosea about the unfaithful wife in chapter 3 and verse 1. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him to become another man's, May she turn back and return to him again? Of course, that's in Deuteronomy 24, the law of Moses. She couldn't do that. Would not such a woman be greatly defiled? But you committed fornication with many shepherds and have, and have returned to me, says the Lord. Lift up your eyes straight ahead and see. Where have you not been defiled? You sat down for them along the roads like a deserted crow and defile the land with your fornications and vices. Yes, you have many shepherds as an occasion of stumbling for yourself. The appearance of a prostitute has come upon you, but you shamelessly deny all this. Have you not called me, as it were, a home, a father, and a founder of your virginity? Will this appearance continue forever or be maintained to the end? Behold, you said and did these evil things as you were able. So the reason God says... To Moses, before they go in, take heed, make sure that, that, that you don't intermarry with them, that you don't follow their practices, you don't eat at their sacrifices, because God knew that this would corrupt them. And God says, I am a jealous God. This is like a husband who married a wife here in both accounts, and the wife just went and made herself a prostitute to everybody along the side of the road. Um, so this is, this is the, that's basically the end of the story. That's why in the beginning, God is warning them to not become unfaithful wives. And this beautiful picture of the people, it says, God says, look, check out the other countries. Did any other nation ever change out its gods like you have? You're worse than the pagan nations around you. You've forsaken the fountain of living water and dug for yourselves wells that hold no water. Beautiful picture here. So, this is all a nice history lesson, but what is, what's the implication for us that's in this story? I think about some things that Jesus, so God's warning them, don't intermarry with the people around you, don't make any treaties with them. Does that remind you of anything in the New Testament that it says to Christians? Don't get corrupted by the nations around you. The first thing I think of is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus said in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So he says, you're, you're, you have this valuable, precious relationship with me, but if you lose that, if you lose your saltiness, you're just you're just fit to be thrown out and trampled by men. You're you're no good any longer. I also think about what it says in Luke 8 in the parable of the sower. The ones that fell among the thorns, the ones that are impacted by the world chokes them out. 
says the ones who were, Jesus says in Luke 8, 14, the ones who fell among the thorns are those who, when they've heard, go out and are choked with the cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. It's basically what happened. The people went into Canaan. God drove the enemies out, but they became corrupted and entangled in the sins of the world around them. Um, I'll sing 1 Corinthians 15. It's, a, it's basically some proverb that Paul says. He says, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good character. So you tend to become like those who run with the wise, go wise, grow wise is the, is the, the flip side of that. You tend to become like the people that you hang around with and are intimate with. And then the biggest connection I see is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the biggest parallel. Paul's talking to the Corinthians. So think about what he's saying. Don't make covenants with them. Don't marry with, don't intermarry with them, or they'll corrupt you, they'll destroy you. First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 11, Paul says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak to you as children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will walk, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them, and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no, do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness out of the fear of God. So similar to the command of the, com- the command made to the Israelites, don't make covenants with them and don't intermarry with them. What's he say here? He says, he says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. But what does that mean? Well, there's, there's, there's a, uh, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. What, what are righteousness and wickedness have, have in common with each other? Well, one thing I know it applies to is marriage. So don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, I think it, it may go way beyond that. I'm not sure what else it includes, but certainly it includes marriage. Now, we have remotely on, on, on this, uh, in, the, in the class here, we have a lot of children on the call, and we have people in the room and people who are listening elsewhere who are single. Uh, when I was in my late 20s, I was at the time an agnostic, started reading the Bible, came to faith, and started thinking, all right, I really need to get my life right with God. I was about ready to get baptized. And I had to, as Jesus say, count the cost. What is it going to take? Do I have what it takes to make it to the end? Am I prepared? Am I starting to think? It's not just an impulsive decision. I need to sit down and think about what do I need to agree to to become a Christian? I had read through the whole New Testament before I came to this point. So I knew, I knew, I didn't understand everything, but I knew some of the basic things in there, and also from talking to other Christians. And one of the things I realized is you can't be yoked together with unbelievers. And I thought as a young single guy at the age of 28, I said, okay, that means I only have two choices uh, regarding my, my, uh, my, my marital state. I said, either I can remain single for the rest of my life, or I can marry another committed Christian. So, that, so I said, okay, now what that means is, I don't know what the percentage is, if it's 90%, 95%, but all the cute girls, single girls that were out there in the world at the time, basically I'm saying I'm slamming the door on the opportunity to get married to pursue a romantic relationship with almost all of them at that point in time. So... And I thought, well, if, if either I'll stay single for the rest of my life or I'll marry a Christian. 
and I'll be content with that. But that was a cost that I had to count before I got baptized. And uh, so maybe, maybe some of you have been in the same situation. Maybe not. I don't know. But for the younger listeners that are here, particularly uh, who have not made the decision to become Christians yet, you might as well know right up front, this is part of the cost of becoming a Christian, is that there, there's no third option. That's basically your two choices. And then marriages, marriages until death do you part. So that was a pretty, of all the costs that I had to count, that was one of the ones that was definitely in the forefront because it had such a huge impact on my life. So I thought, uh, you know, I, I also thought about the passage. It says in 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine, it talks about, uh, if your spouse, if a Christian is married and their spouse dies, in the case of talking to a woman, it says a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she's at liberty to marry to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So that means only a Christian. So uh, it's basically it's the same thing. It should, uh, should I die before my wife or, I, or, or she die before me? We have the, the liberty to remarry. But only a Christian. So that's that's for for the married people. There's still there's that's still part of the uh, uh, part of the cost of becoming a Christian as well. So uh, uh, that definitely made a big impact on me in my twenties. Thinking about that, uh, I had to make a decision that uh, if I was going to get married, I needed to marry someone who believed in Jesus and was serious about following him and who loved God even more than she loved me on, on, her, on the best day. <laughs> and I did. I married Allison. Amen. Allison said, gotcha, I, was, I, was, I was blessed. I found a woman who really loved God, and I loved her and uh, still do. So, that, that's, uh, so that, that's been a, it's been a blessing. But, but no, I, had to, I had to count the cost, and it's a, count, it's a cost that all of us uh, uh, need to be, to be aware of, because just like it says here. Just says, says you can't be yoked together with unbelievers. The same the same concept was there in the Old Testament. Don't intermarry with the nations around you because they will corrupt you. Now, for those who happen for whatever reason to be married to unbelievers, uh, uh, don't don't uh, don't get discouraged by that. Peter and Paul both talk about that situation, and they say. In 1 Peter 3, Peter talks about that, and 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about that. And they both say, do your best to live a godly life and to, to win your spouse over in, in a loving way by the wonderful, uh, great example that you that you lead. And as the old saying goes, uh, 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 preach the gospel and, and use words if necessary. So that's the, <laughs> live, basically living, living it out. So now... So this is this is a big obvious one. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Don't don't intermarry in the nations around you because they're going to corrupt you. Um, I mean that's Solomon. Think about this. Solomon was the wisest man on earth, and he was corrupted by his wives. By he married pagan wives. He's told not to do that. He married pagan wives, and they corrupted him. So so none of us are going to are as smart as he is. And he got he got pulled aside. He got he got pulled off course by that. So. Uh, let's let's it's it's another warning for us, uh, and also the whole idea of being yoked together and don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Well, what do you mean be deceived? Well, a lot of people think, oh, I can hang around with wicked people and not be affected by that. That's what it's talking about. No, you're. It's not. It's gonna. You have to be very careful about that. Your closest friendships, your closest relationships, need to be with people who are. Walking in the light and who are going to encourage you. Why is it important for us to gather together? You know, do not do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing because we need the fellowship. We, you know, if we're, if we're isolated and we're in the world, we're, we're an easy target for Satan to pick off. So we, we, we need the close relationships. Um, now, some people may even take this further and when they're talking about their businesses, when people are forming businesses, to stop and think, do you really want to form a business relationship with somebody who's not a believer? I have a business owner here who's nodding his head <laughs> in appreciation for what I'm saying right here. So if you want to start a business, 
uh, you know, I was working for a big company. It certainly wasn't a Christian company. I was working as an engineer. It would be very hard for me to find an engineering firm that was run by, uh, run by Christians in my, in my field. So uh, we all have to, to make it work, work out. So Paul says, uh, you know, we, we have to live in the world. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, you know, we can't go out of the world. We're going to be dealing with sinful people in life. But the principle of who are your closest friends who are the people that you have, the, the, whether it's a, a business relationship, a personal relationship, uh, even going beyond marriage? The principle is don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Uh, and uh, something I noticed in this passage here I hadn't noticed before. Um, he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. I was reading through this week. It says, think about this. It says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, so this is obviously referring to the Old Testament, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. So so, so think about this. He says, you are the temple of the living God. God said, I will dwell in them. That's a fulfillment of that. We are temples of the living God because God said in the Old Testament as a prophecy, I will dwell in them. So it reminds me of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know? He's also talking about holiness there. He says, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So in one place, Paul says, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you in 1 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6, he says, you're the temple of the living God as God has said, I will be in you. <clears throat> I just kind of stumbled on that reading through the scriptures. I had a, a, a rather, uh, uh, I don't know how to put this, put this diplomatically. I had a, uh, a rather bracing conversation about the nature of God with a dear Christian friend. And he said, you know, I believe that the Father is God. I believe that the Son of God. But where does it say that the Holy Spirit is God? And I pointed out, I said, well, in, in Acts chapter 5, in the whole story of Ananias and Sapphira, it says he lied to the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, you haven't lied to men, you've lied to God. So there he's, he says, you lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. And he says, well, you know, I'm not convinced by that. Can you, can you, can you, can you give me something a little clearer? And I just stumbled onto this where he's saying, God says, I, God has said, I will dwell in them. You are the temple of the living God. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. What does that tell you about the Holy Spirit? What does that tell you about the Holy Spirit? I mean, clearly, it tells, to me, it seems very clear. We're not the temple. We're not a temple that has two different things in us. And and what goes in the temple? Something that's worthy of worship. That's the whole idea. That's what a temple is. A temple is a house that holds something that is to be worshipped. So we are the temple of the living God, as God said, "I will be in them." And after all, that is exactly what Jesus said in in John fourteen. He said, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, dwells with you and will be in you. In John 14, 17, and John 14, 26, he goes on and says, that is the spirit of the Holy Spirit, basically. So, I mean, it all fits together. The, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the living God. God dwells in us in fulfillment of prophecy. So a uh, little, little side note on there, but I figured while we're there, let's, let's, uh, let's share that as well. Let's continue in Ezekiel 34. I'm sorry, Exodus 34. Starting in verse 18. The feast of the unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. At the season of the month of new grain. For in the month of new grain you came out from Egypt. 
All that open the womb are mine. Every male firstborn among your livestock of oxen or sheep. But the firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with a sheep. And if you will not redeem it, you shall pay a price. All the firstborn of your son you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. There shall be rest in seed time and harvest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the feast of the ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifices with leaven, nor shall the sacrifices from the feast of Pascha be left until morning. The first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a lamb in its mother's milk. Now, a lot of this, a lot of these, these requirements here are actually things we talked about in prior lessons. So this is a bit of a review. And so I can, I can ask you what you remember about these things. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or you can go back and review the, the prior lessons. So a lot of this is repeating what was, what was earlier. The first thing he says, one of the things he says here is that there are, there are three festivals, three feasts where all the men have to appear before the Lord. He says, don't worry, while you're away, somebody's not going to go grab your land. Okay, so don't, just don't worry about that. We'll, we'll, well, that. That'll be protected. So there's the first one is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is also known as the Passover. So the two are happening. I mean, the Passover lamb is, uh, you have, the, you have the, the Passover lamb is slain. You have the meal, the Passover meal. And then the next seven days, you get all the yeast out. And we talked about the significance of that. Paul explains that in 1 Corinthians about how the lamb has been slain. Now we get all the sin out. That's, that's, that's what that was all about. All these things are foreshadowed. The second one, the Feast of Weeks, is also known as Pentecost. Okay? So there's seven weeks, seven sevens, 49. Pentecost means 50. So it's, that's basically be 50 days later. The third one is the Feast of Ingathering, otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles. We did, we did a, a lesson earlier in this series from Exodus 23, three feasts that matter where we went into that, so I'm not going to repeat that here. Uh, the next thing he talks about here, he also talks about the, the Sabbath. So he, he, he repeats the Sabbath requirement, which was discussed early. We, we had in the Ten Commandments Part 2 lesson on Exodus 20, uh, verses 1 to 17, we talked about that. The Sabbath is foreshadowing that the rest comes at the end, on the, the creation. God worked for seven days, for six days, rested on the seventh day. And Hebrews 3 and 4, the point that the Hebrews writer is making is work, 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 rest comes at the end, the last day of the week. Right? Saturday is the Sabbath, that's the last day of the week, and that's the day of rest under the Jewish law. So the point that he's making is, it's work time. It's still work time. Rest comes at the end. That's the rest that we're looking for, that uh, that uh, the first Jesus didn't bring him into the land of rest, that the second Jesus, uh, Jesus, the Son of God, will do that. The first Jesus referring to, to Joshua. So, And then he says, Another thing in this section, he talks about redeeming all the firstborn males. So now I was uh, I was uh, the first child and obviously a male in a family of four, two boys and two girls. And I think my younger siblings felt like since I was the oldest and since I was the firstborn male that, uh, uh, you know, maybe I'm sure that, you know, giving them a hard time and, 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 and beating a ping pong, things like that had nothing to do with it. But they, I felt like they were always, they were always out to push me off of my position as the firstborn male. But the, the firstborn male in scripture is given a special position. He says, they're mine. You want them back. You have to pay a price to redeem them, to get them back. And, uh, you know, I always thought God just likes the firstborn. But actually, do you know what this goes back to? This discussion about redeeming the firstborn male. What does that have to do with? 
Do you remember? Okay, yeah, it's the it's the it's the plague, the tenth plague. Let's go back to Exodus thirteen. Exodus thirteen eleven. This is why. So God's reminding them of something He explained earlier at the time of the the last plague. Exodus 13 and verse 11. Then it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to your forefathers, and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is, every male, everything that opens the womb from the herds or among your cattle, as many as you shall have, you shall sanctify the males to the Lord. But every offspring that opens the womb of a donkey you shall exchange for a sheep, but if you will not exchange it, you shall redeem it. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? You shall say to him, With a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thus it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of cattle. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a sign on your hand and an immovable before your eyes, for with a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So this is a reminder ever after about what happened the night of the Passover. The night of the Passover, all the firstborn were killed. The firstborn from among the, the sheep and the donkeys and the cattle and the people, all the firstborn were killed. The only ones who weren't killed are the ones who were covered with the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed. That those were the ones who were not killed among the firstborn. Of course, this is all foreshadowing the sacrifice of Jesus. That he was the he was the lamb that was slain to redeem us, to 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 free us from the death that we otherwise would have seen. Turn to Exodus chapter thirty four, uh, verse twenty seven. Again, the Lord said to Moses, "Write these words for yourself. For according to these words, I established a covenant with you and with Israel." So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. He wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, he did not know the skin of his face was glorified while God talked with him. So when Aaron and all his children of Israel saw Moses and the glorified appearance of the skin of his face, they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all the Lord commanded him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whenever the Lord commanded him. So the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that it was glorified. And Moses put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. So this is a, uh, let's think about this. Moses coming down the mountain doesn't realize it. I guess Joshua didn't come with him this time. So he's apparently he's by himself. He goes up the mountain, 40 days with the Lord, praying and fasting writes the Ten Commandments himself on the stone, comes down with the Ten Commandments, and his face is glowing with light. Aaron and the other men see him and are terrified. <laughs> okay. They'd never seen anything like this before. Moses' face was radiant. And so they don't want to get too close to him because they're scared. What? What's this? So, uh, um, and, and, and Moses... Uh, Moses was oblivious to the fact that his his face was like this. So what what he did, he spoke to the people, he, he, he calmed them down, spoke to them. And then it says that whenever Moses went to speak to the Lord, he would uncover his face. And then when he came out, he'd cover it again. So I'm guessing it talked about how they set up the his uh, tent of meeting outside the camp. 
And he would go and meet with the Lord there. I'm guessing that after he came down from the mountain, periodically he'd go and, and speak to the Lord. So he'd go and speak to the Lord, and he would uncover his face. And, uh, you know, in and, and, and 2 Corinthians, it talks about his, his face. It's like kind of like a battery that just starts dying out. His face would start to lose charge, and, his, and he'd become less and less bright over time. So he'd come back and be recharged with the Lord. It's like a, charge, a spiritual charging station. He'd go in, and his face, he'd uncover, he'd uncover his face, and his face would be bright, and then he'd cover it up again and because it was, it was starting to, to die down after that over time. Uh, so, you know, why is this detail in the story included. It doesn't mention anything about this after this. And I think there are two, there are two reasons why it's in here uh, for us. The story, this strange story about Moses' glowing face. Uh, the, the first thing, actually, it, you, may, you may not have thought about this, but in, in Deuteronomy 18, this is the, the, the great prophecy. Peter talks about it. Stephen talks about it. Jesus alludes to it. This is a great prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 where God says, in the future, I will raise up a prophet like Moses. Okay. Now, who else in all the Bible had a glowing face other than Moses? I mean, God's literally putting like a neon sign of here's the guy right here, the one with the glowing. He goes up on the mountain and his face is shining. Who else, who else can you think of in the Bible who was like that? So God says it's going to be a prophet like Moses. Well, here's one more gigantic hint, tip-off of who it is. And let's go back and read in Matthew chapter 17. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led him up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Now notice it mentions that Peter was there in Matthew. Peter, when he starts off in 1 Peter, establishing his credentials of why you need to listen to him, what does Peter say? He says, I was with him on the mountain when I heard the voice speaking to him. Peter's saying, listen to me because I was on the mountain right there. Peter talks about this story. He's like, <laughs> you know, you're getting it from the, the, the absolute top inside source here is an eyewitness to the glory when the father was speaking to Jesus. And then second Corinthians, we'll close with this chapter three. You know, I got to cover this. (laughs) All kinds of lessons that Paul draws out of this. Second Corinthians chapter three, starting in verse seven. If the ministry of death, and he's talking about basically the, the old covenant, written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. Even to this day, when Moses has read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ as the image of God should shine on them. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. A wonderful passage. says He's saying here, look, as glorious as Moses' ministry was, he says that's the ministry of death. We have the ministry of life. Moses' glory was fading away over time. And one of the reasons he had a veil over it is because he, he didn't want to see the, the, the glow receding. Uh, but our glory is unfading. And he says this should denote the knowledge of this, that we possess an even greater glory and one that doesn't fade away than Moses had, this should motivate us to be bold in speech. This is, it should produce something, a great confidence having this kind of glory. And he says, don't be discouraged. The unbelievers, when they hear the gospel, they're, the, the door is closed. The veil is there. They don't want to hear it. And when we turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away so we can see the light. And he also speaks about Satan here. He says he uses veiled language. He says the God of this age has blinded the unbelievers. Think about when the, when the seed that gets sown and the birds come and take it away so that they can't believe. Jesus, Paul's talking about the same thing. The God of this age has blinded the unbelievers. We are called to be transformed as we behold the face of Christ, the shining, radiant face of Christ, to be transformed, become more and more like him. And he reminds us that the same God, in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1-3, who said, in the darkness, let there be light. The same God has shown light in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Amen.